<clears throat> Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for allowing us to meet together as we are. We thank you, Lord, for everyone who is here, everyone who made the effort and saw the importance of being here. For those who are not able to make it, we ask, God, that you would bless them and be with them, strengthen them and make them well, because uh, we definitely don't have the usual crowd that we do, but uh, it doesn't matter. Everybody who's supposed to be here is here, and uh, Lord, I thank you and I praise you for that. I pray that you would just open up our hearts and our minds to allow your Holy Spirit to move and work in such a way that would bring the most honor and glory to your name, in such a way that would draw us closer to you and uh, transform us and conform us into better uh, people, more according to your ultimate will, work, and way. Help me, Lord, to speak with uh, boldness, with authority, with clarity. Uh, Lord, please let the words that I say be your words and not my own. And help me to know when to step back and allow the word of God to speak for itself. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Um, a lot of you just know me as a minister, and I don't really say a whole lot unless I'm speaking before a congregation, so sometimes it may appear to you guys that I'm, I'm strong, I'm with it, um, you know, if I go through valleys, they're, they're not really that bad, they're really short, or what have you, but I go through my battles and I go through my struggles too, and you know, there's sometimes I just feel like, okay, what am I doing here? Like, am I really making a difference in this world? Is my presence in this world really important? I start doubting myself. I start doubting my God-given abilities. I start doubting, you know, why I'm, a, I'm even in ministry. And I start getting down on myself. Uh, we all do that. I'm sure everybody, all of us, at some point in time, come to a place where we just question who we are, we question our worth, we question our abilities, we question why we're even here. And hopefully, through one of these dark times that I went through, I'm able to help you to kind of uh, uh, beat this next time it comes your way. So I think the important question that we need to ask is who am I in God and who am I in Messiah? I think those are very important questions to ask. Because if we are just talking about ourselves, we are nothing. Because even, even the Lord said, I think in John 15, if I'm not mistaken, without me, you can do nothing. Our worth apart from God and our worth apart from Messiah really doesn't mean that much. I mean, after all, even if we can muster up the best good that we can in ourselves, it doesn't amount to anything but filthy rags. Because our righteousness, according to Isaiah, is nothing but filthy rags. So really, apart from God, apart from Messiah, we are nothing. And it seems like the enemy can kind of get us on that when we have strayed away from God, or we've backslidden, or we don't give God enough credit. He can call us out for the failures and the worms and the fallen creatures that we really are. So it's important to ask, who am I in God and who am I in Messiah? That's where we find our worth. The word will tell you all you got to do is look inside yourself. All you got to do is trust your heart. That's where you find your worth. And then there's others of a philosophy that says, well, you may not have any worth inside you. You've got to create your own worth or you've got to find your own worth or make your own worth. 
Well, that's just totally ridiculous. We know from a biblical worldview that there's nothing good inside ourselves because we're fallen human creatures. So if we try to find good within ourselves and we look and reach inside ourselves, we're going to find a false goodness. We're going to find a false righteousness because that can only take us so far. Um, and if we try to look outside ourselves, we, we, we've taken the view off of fallen creation from ourselves, our fallen selves, and we place it on this fallen world. There's nothing of this world that's of wealth that we can find goodness in and find worth in. You know, some people become famous, and that's where they find their worth. But we know that fame uh, only lasts for a season. So when they're not famous anymore or public opinion is turned on them, then where do they find their worth? Then what do they think of themselves? Where do they find themselves? There's people who get so wrapped up in their careers and in their jobs, and that's where their identity is. It, no matter where you go, and you, you're, you're in a party and you're meeting new people, they'll ask your name, and the second thing they'll ask, well, what do you do for a living? And that's how they rate you and judge your worth in their eyes in that party. I mean, I was just talking with my son-in-law about this. And, you know, he says, I, I, just, I just can't stand it when I tell people what I do for a living. And then they're trying to base their judgment on me from what I do. I'm more than what I do. And they think that, what, that I could be doing so much more than what I'm doing or that what I'm doing isn't worth anything. He's, he's, got, he's got a business degree from Crandall University. And people are thinking, oh, you should be in a Fortune 500 company by now, or you should be doing this or that. There's, but you're just doing lawn care? He's like, you don't get it. I enjoy doing lawn care. I feel like I'm ministering and doing good doing lawn care. And it's not just that I do grunt work and run mowers and weed eaters. I crunch the numbers. I crunch the books because I do have a business degree. It's a family business. So it's not only I'm investing you know, in the community as far as the work that I do, but I'm investing in my family because it's a family business. And yet people want to judge him because, you know, oh, a lawns keeper is so much lower on the uh, social scale than a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Well, me, I think I would put the CEO down there because he's just in his ivory tower and he's not stuck in reality. He's not where the common people are. So what does he know? Just because he's rich, just because he's powerful, just because he's got fame doesn't mean he's smart. Doesn't mean that he's got common sense. Doesn't mean that he knows it all. And it seems like people flock to the people that have money. Just because they have money doesn't mean they know what right and wrong is. Doesn't mean they know what to do. So who am I in God and who am I in Messiah? So next time you get down on yourself, next time you question your worth, you ask yourself those questions and you think, you know what? I'm important enough to be a thought become reality in God's mind. Think about that. Before this world ever existed, before he spoke this world into creation, before he spoke the stars into creation, the planets, this universe that we live in, we were a concept, a thought in God's mind. Now we can understand this a little bit because we sit back, you know, especially those of us who are carpenters, those of us who are artists, you know, we have an idea and we take that idea and we make it a reality. As an artist, sometimes I have a picture in my head and I'm able to bring it out on a piece of paper. Or I have a story in my mind and I'm able, able to bring it to reality, bring it from my mind into this world, into this existence by writing a script or writing a story. 
you know, so we have an idea a little bit about creation. So think about before anything ever existed, I'm an important enough to be a thought become reality in God's mind. Somewhere in eternity past, God thought of you and you and you and you and you and me. We were an idea and concept. And he thought, I'm going to create these people. I'm going to create Tracy and Carla. You know, I'm going to create, uh, you know, Chom and Linda. And I'm going to create you. I'm going to create you. I'm going to, cre I'm going to create. And he just thinks of everybody. No matter how we came into this world, how we came into this world doesn't even matter. Some of us came here by maybe not so good circumstances. Maybe your mother was raped. or Maybe you were an unplanned pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy. It doesn't matter. The fact that you're here valid, uh, validates your importance. Just your existence validates your importance because you were a thought become reality in God's mind. So you think to yourself, I'm important enough for him to create me with a purpose and with meaning. We may have found ourselves coming to existence into this world by unsavory means that I've mentioned before. But that doesn't dictate or create a destiny for our purpose and our existence and our meaning. You remember when uh, uh, in Jeremiah, God said, I called you to be a prophet in your mother's womb. I knew you before you were even born. I knew you while you were being knit in your mother's womb. So the Lord already has a calling and a purpose and meaning for our life even before we are born, even before we do come into existence. He has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. We are that important. So let's turn to Genesis. We're going to be going through a lot of scripture tonight. And I think the scripture is going to speak more for itself than I elaborate on the scriptures. So Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, or 26 rather. Then God said, let us. In other words, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Some even say the divine counsel. He even consulted the angels before he created man. That's what some theologians say when it says, let us. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So there's that thought. It was like God says, you know what? I've got an idea. I want to make mankind. I want to make human beings. Well, what's maybe maybe the angels ask, well, what's the purpose of human beings? Why create human beings? Aren't we the angels enough? Well, yes, I love you and you're important to me and you're important to my plan, but I want to make humans. They're going to be a little bit lower than you. They're going to be like your little brother, so to speak. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why? For what purpose? To let them rule over the fish of the sea. See, we were born with purpose and meaning. Adam was born with purpose and meaning. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the flying creatures of the sky, over the livestock, over the whole earth, over every crawling creature that crawls on the land. So basically, God says, I'm going to create man, and he's going to, make, he's going to be the managers, the caretakers of this world, of this earth I created. From the animal kingdom to the plant kingdom to whatever else, they're going to be in charge of it all. 
Wow. Think about that. You remember the first time your, your mom, your dad, or an authority figure put you in charge of something? It made you feel important. It made you feel like you were worth something. It made you feel special. Special enough for somebody to trust you enough with the care of something else or somebody else. And that's what the Lord did with us for the earth. Because remember, what was Adam's first job? To tend and keep the garden and to guard the garden. He kind of blew it with the guarding part, obviously, because he let the snake in to do its dastardly work. But he gave us a job to do. He created us with purpose and meaning. Verse 27, God created humankind in his image. And the image of God, meaning the way we think, feel, and act. We have a conscious. We have a mind. We have uh, the, the ability to, to distinguish right from wrong. We can think. We can reason. We are in the image of God because God is creator, but yet we as people, we can create too. Whether it's giving birth to children, creating other human beings, or whether it's building buildings or painting paintings or writing songs, we create. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, Then Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so that man became a living being or a living soul. He didn't do that with dogs and cats and dolphins and spiders and ants and birds. He spoke those things into creation. He just said, be, and it was. He took the time to tactilely, physically create man. Just as we would take a lump of clay and make a sculpture out of it, he formed a human being. I'm going to give life to this lifeless lump of clay. God took his own breath and breathe it into us. We've got the breath of God in us. And that's why we're alive. We became a living soul, a living being. God cared enough to give a little bit of himself to create us. That's how important and that's how special we are. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is the book of the genealogies of Adam. When God created Adam in the likeness of God, he made him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and called their name Adam when he created them. Adam lived 130 years, then fathered a son in his likeness and after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he fathered uh, other sons and daughters. So all of Adam's days he lived were 930 years, and then he died. So it talks about God creating us in his image, and then man creating another man in his image. Seth, his son, was, was, was almost his twin, was like his twin, was his carbon copy, if you will. I'd also like to turn to the Psalms, and uh, let's see here. Psalm chapter 139, or uh, Psalm 139. Okay, there's Proverbs. Hang on a second here. Okay, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18. 
139, 13 through 18. The psalmist says, For you have created my conscience. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows that very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was unformed, and in your book were written the days that were formed when not one of them have, have come to be. Before we were even born, God had a book of our life, had it all planned out. He knew exactly what was going to happen to us. How precious are your thoughts, O oh God? It's all because of God's thoughts that we're here in the first place. He thought of us and then decided to create us. How precious are your thoughts, O oh God? How great is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, it's inconceivable to think of how many grains of sand are on this planet. And it says here, how great are the sum of your thoughts of me? God thinks of us. There's more thoughts about us in God's mind than there are grains of sand on this planet. I can't, that blows my mind. I can't fathom that. That's how much God loves us. That's how much God cares about us. That's how important we are to God. How precious are your thoughts, O God? How great is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And in uh, Jeremiah, if I can find his book here. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, and we kind of mentioned this before. Before I formed you, this is God talking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in your womb, I knew you. I knew you before you physically came into existence. Why? Because you were in my heart, you were in my mind. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I designated you to be holy. Even before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before Adam was created, God already had in mind, he's going to be the manager over all of creation, and he's going to be the guardian of the garden. Before Jeremiah was born, he decided he was going to be a prophet. Before any of us was born, he decided what the calling was upon our life. And I tell you, it changes your whole world when you realize what you were put on this planet to do. Right now, I'm doing what I've been put on this planet to do. I was never fully myself. I was never fully happy until I discovered God wanted me to teach and preach his word. Now that I'm doing that, I'd rather be doing this than anything else. I know I was put on this planet to do what I'm doing right now. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you prophet to the nations. And in Ecclesiastes, which is written by uh, David's son Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, chapter 12, verse 13, it reads, 
a final word when all has been heard. So until you understand and know the calling that God has placed upon your life, the purpose why you've been put on this planet, this is your purpose. This is your meaning. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this applies to all mankind. The biggest existential question in philosophy is who am I and why am I here? And it's everybody still can't figure it out, but God said it plainly in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's your meaning. That's your purpose. That's who you are in God, and that's why you are on this planet. For this applies to all mankind. That's the meaning of life right there. And that's the biggest question philosophers have. What is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to fear God and to keep his commandments. So you're, an, you're important enough to be a thought, become reality in God's mind. You're important enough for him to create you with purpose and meaning. And you're important enough to be ransomed by God's most beloved. When Adam and Eve strayed from the plan, God had every right to just say, okay, I'm scrapping it. I'm starting over. When I'm drawing and I'm not totally pleased with my drawing, I crumple up that piece of paper and throw it in the garbage. I'm done with it. And I have a right to be done with it because it's my creation. I think it's in Jeremiah where God says, hey, I can't remember which prophet he told me. He said, hey, go to the potter's house. And so the prophet uh, looked and he realized, he said, you know what? When, when I seen this potter making a, a vessel and it didn't turn out quite right or quite the way he wanted it to, what did he do? He just crumpled it up and started it all over. He could have done that with us. But he said, no, 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 I love my creation. It's flawed, but that's okay. I've got a plan to fix everything. And this plan to fix everything has been thousands of years in the making. 2,000 years ago was a big step in that fixing everything. I think we're on the verge and on the edge of that final fixation of everything. Because the goal is to bring everything back to the beginning, to bring everything back to the Edenic state. If you read in the scripture about the millennial kingdom, it's perfect. There's peace, there's no war, there's no pain, there's no death. It's perfect. Bringing everything back to the beginning. So I'm important enough to be ransomed by God's most beloved. And for that, I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, heavenly places in Messiah. He chose us in Messiah before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, he knew it was going to be screwed up. Before the world was created, he knew it was going to be fallen. And he says, I, got a, I already got a backup. I already got a plan already. I know this is the way it's going to go, but that's okay. We're going to roll with it. He chose us in Messiah before the foundation of the world to be holy and to be blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Messiah Yeshua in keeping with the good pleasure of his will. To the glorious praise of his grace with which he favored us through the one he loves. God 
sacrificed his greatest love, his greatest possession, if you will, to redeem us, to ransom us. He allowed his own son to step in front of the train, to step in front of the bus, to take the bullet for us. I don't think any one of us here would give up any one of our children for anybody else. There'd be no way I'd let, I'd sacrifice Ariana to save somebody else. There'd be no way I would do that. But that's exactly what God did for us. And of course, how can we talk, how can we talk about the sacrifice without bringing up John 3.16? That's the go-to. John 3.16, for God loved the world. In other words, all of humankind, all of mankind. For God so loved the world that he gave, willingly, not begrudgingly, he gave his one and only son. I mean, many of us have many children. Oh, if, if I sacrifice one, I got three or four more. It's okay. None of us would do that either. But here, God only had one son. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever, who's whoever? Yeah, it could be anybody. There's no qualification on that. As long as they're a human being, a human being is whoever, whosoever. Whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith or trust in him, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe has, not been, has been condemned already because he has not put his trust in the name of the one and only Ben Elohim, Son of God. Redeemed. I am his child and he is my father. He does what's best for me. Now, I said that in the first person, but he redeemed us. We are his children. He is our father. He does what is best for us. So in Luke chapter 11, and I do hope and pray that this encourages you tonight. Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 9. So I, uh, so I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. The way we read it in English, we just think of knock, 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 and that's it. Or ask, and we kind of imply, oh, we're just asking once. We think seeking, oh, we're just looking really hard just one time. But the way it's written in the Greek, it would be better translated, keep asking, and it shall be given to you. Keep seeking, and you shall find. Keep knocking, and it shall be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Anyone who keeps seeking, finds. Anyone who keeps knocking, it will be open. What father, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? And if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you, being evil, meaning being fallen human beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, to those who ask Him? Not only did He give us His Son, that would have been enough. 
But Yeshua, his son, said, it's beneficial that I go away because if I don't go away, then you can't receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is another gift that God has given us. So I'm important enough to be ransomed and for him to do what is best for me. May not seem it at the time because I don't understand it. But Romans 8, well, we know that Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. But not many of us remember what Romans 8.32 says. Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? We are his children. He is our father, and he does what's best for us. Whatever we need, he'll give. Not necessarily our wants, because we don't always want good things. We don't always need what we want, but we will always get what we need. And sometimes if our wants line up with his will and line up with his goodness or what's good, sometimes he'll even give us our wants. So I am adopted or we are adopted. We are joint heirs with Messiah Yeshua. We have access to what Messiah has access to. That's pretty powerful if you sit and think about it. We're adopted. We are joint heirs with Messiah Yeshua. So it's like, let's say that, that uh, you know, we all are siblings. And let's say our rich father passes away and we're sitting here, you know, in, in the, the study and the lawyer's here and he breaks open the will and he reads the last will and testament of our rich father. And we all get equal share in the fortune. We all get a share in the estate. We are all, you know, I'm an heir, you're an heir, you're an heir, but we're all joint heirs. So it says here we are co-heirs. We are joint heirs with Messiah Yeshua. So in Ephesians, back to Ephesians 1.3, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Flipping back to Romans where we just were, back to Romans 8. Romans 8, starting with verse 14, it says, For all who are led by the Holy Spirit, by the, Ruach, by the Spirit of God, by the Ruach Elohim, these are the sons of God. So it's as if the Holy Spirit is the proof that we're His. It's, it's, like, that, uh, it's like that deed or that document that we have rights to be co-heirs with Messiah Yeshua. For all who are led by the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, you remember me saying, if you were you know, with me this morning when I, when I preached, that sons of God always meant the angelic race up until the New Testament. And right here is where that transition comes, where we are called the sons of God now. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall again into fear. Rather, you received the spirit of adoption. We've been adopted. You've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Father just seems so formal and seems so you know, distant. 
But Abba is the word for daddy. That's a very intimate term, a very childlike term. You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay. All right, continuing on. The Ruach, or the Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So how do I know that we're joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ Jesus and Messiah Yeshua and we have access to what Messiah has? Well, he gave us an example when he rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead, he rose with a body that's never going to get sick, that's never going to die, that could walk through walls, that could travel at the speed of thought, that could fly up into the air in the ascension. He was resurrected with that body to tell us when we die and are resurrected, we're going to be resurrected with just those like bodies, bodies that will never get sick, bodies that will never die, bodies that will be able to travel at the speed of thought, walk through walls, what have you. We're going to be resurrected with new bodies because Messiah already paid for that for us. That was, that's what Yeshua inherited from God. And because we're joint heirs with Messiah, we're going to inherit that from, you know, with Messiah as well. So in John chapter 1, starting with verse 12, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But those who did receive him, those trusting in his name, to these he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of a bloodline, nor of human desire, nor of the will of man, but for God. I hope these scriptures are ringing very true and powerful in your spirit tonight. John 15. And what I'm reading to you is all the things that God revealed to me one day when I was feeling down on myself, when I thought, why continue on? Why go on? Why am I here? Have I done any good? Does it even matter? And what I'm reading to you is what God gave me. So John 15, starting with verse 15, I am no longer calling you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Now I have called you friends. Because everything I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I selected you so that you would go and produce fruit, and your fruit will remain. Then the Father will give whatever you ask in my name. Remember in school when you had to divide up into teams, whether it was dodgeball or baseball or basketball or whatever? If you got picked, it felt good. It felt good to be chosen. You were chosen by the team captain to be a part of that team. Well, it says here, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I selected you so that you would go and produce fruit. So what is our purpose? Our purpose is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Yeshua said, also your purpose is to go and produce fruit. And your fruit will remain. Why will it remain? Because it's God's will. Why will it remain? Because what we're doing is we're doing for the glory of God. That's why it will remain. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Wow. 
Not that God is some kind of genie in the lamp or anything like that, but that's pretty powerful. The Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. That's why we pray, and that's why we say in Jesus' name, in Yeshua's name. That's why we invoke that. So no matter what happens, it's ultimately for our benefit. Because we don't understand what we're going through or, or, or why things happen to us sometimes. But whatever happens to us is ultimately for our good, ultimately for our benefit. I could never understand until I became a father myself when my mom or dad said, you know, this spanking's going to hurt me more than it does you. Well, I understood that when I became a parent. And my parents spanked me for my benefit. It made me a better person. So in Romans 8, starting with verse 28, which is virtually all of us here know it, so Romans 8, 28. Now we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For God, uh, for those whom he foreknew, who is it that he foreknew? Us. Because he thought about us before the foundation of the world. He foreknew us before we were even physically brought into this world or this world was brought into an existence for that matter. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. So in other words, another purpose that we have in this life is this, what the scripture says in Romans 8, 29, to be conformed into the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In Colossians 1, 18, it says that Yeshua is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he was the first one to rise from the dead that would never die again. He was the firstborn. He's the eldest. We, too, one day are going to rise from the dead, never to die again. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're chosen, we're called, we're justified, and we're glorified. What then shall we say in view of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That should give us enough boldness and confidence right there. If God is for us, who can be against us? There's nobody that can defeat God. There's nothing that can defeat God, nothing that can stand against God. So if God's for us, we don't have to worry about who's against us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Messiah who died and moreover was raised and is now at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Why do you think Paul was telling the Romans the, this? Because these are things that they were going to experience being persecuted as believers. There's going to be tribulation and distress. They were going to be persecuted. They were going to be starving. They were going to be naked. They were going to be in, in danger. And threat of the sword. 
But it says in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We don't have to worry about the sword, famine, nakedness, or death. We're conquerors. We can overcome and conquer those things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death itself, life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Everything that comes against us is created. Whether it be physical or supernatural, it's created. Since God created it, he has control over it. We don't have to worry about it. We're more than conquerors of those things. And we can't be separated from God by those things. We will receive what we ask for that lines up with his word and his will and will glorify him. If I pray to win the lottery and I don't win the lottery, then it's not his will. It's not an edict from his word. And if I got all that money from the lottery, God knows that I wouldn't be able, I wouldn't have the ability or, or the capacity to glorify him through that. So if I don't win the lottery, even though I pray for it, that's why. Not because God's mean, not because God doesn't love us, because he knows winning the lottery may not be the best thing for you. So that's why he says no to some of our prayers, because he knows that it wouldn't be in his will, it wouldn't be good for us, and it wouldn't glorify him. So in John, you guys still hanging with me? Yes. John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. See, that's the whole purpose of asking for things. Is not so we would be blessed, not so we would get this or that or get what we wanted, but so that God would be glorified. And whatever you ask in my name, in Yeshua's name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, and that anything implies anything according to his word, anything according to his will, anything accordingly that would glorify God. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, 21 and 22, Yeshua answered them, amen. I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what was done to this fig tree, because the day before Yeshua said, may no fruit ever grow on you again. And overnight it withered, and the disciples were all amazed about it. So that's the context of this verse. Yeshua answered them, Amen. I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what is done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now, is Yeshua talking about a literal mountain or a figurative mountain? It could be both. But in this context, in, in the context of Yeshua's world, mountains was where false gods resided. Mountains were the headquarters of fallen angelic entities, of gods and goddesses. 
So it could be taken in that context, but it could also be taken literally. Because I think the fig tree was a spiritual representation of sin because the fig tree was supposedly the fruit that Adam and Eve ate and fell by. Because it was the only tree that gave the leaf to cover up their sin, to cover up what they did wrong. So maybe it's a spiritual implication here. But if even you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, trusting, you shall receive. And back to John chapter 16. Like I said, I had a lot of scripture, and I'm trying to let the scriptures speak to them for themselves as much as possible. But in John chapter 16, 23, starting with 23. And that day you will ask me nothing. Amen, amen, I tell you that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Up till now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be full. Joy because you got what you wanted? No, joy because God is being glorified in what you asked for. John also writes in the letter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, starting with verse 14. Now this is the confidence, underline that word confidence. Now this is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked from him. So this is the confidence that we can have. Because we're important to God, because God loves us, because he created us, he wants what's best for us. And in John 15, 7 and 8, if you abide, what does the word abide mean? Abide means to stay in, right? To stay inside, to stay with, to hang around. If you abide in me, and how do we stay in Yeshua? By staying in his word. Because the word is who he is. Yeshua is a living manifestation of the written word. So it says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. My words are living and active in you. My words are always swirling around in your heart and in your mind. You're always thinking about them, chewing on them, meditating on them. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. This implies that if we read and know his word, we're going to know what the right things are to ask for. We won't have to worry about asking for something stupid or something that's outside of his will. If we abide in him and abide in his word, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. In this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. And in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 22. And Yeshua answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Trust is kind of another word for faith in some instances. Have faith or have trust in God. Amen, I tell you, if someone says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it shall, uh, and does not doubt in his heart, but trust that what he says will happen, 
so shall it be for him. For this reason I say to you that whatever you pray and ask, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you of your transgressions. So, okay, you may be saying, that's all well and good. But what if my internal dialogue says opposite of what you just read? Has that ever happened to you guys? Like you know the things in God's word, but you have somebody or something whispering in your ear, oh, that's not true. You know, you're stupid, you're worthless, you can't do anything. So if that internal dialogue says otherwise, there's some scriptures to combat that. So in the book of, or the letter of James, chapter 1, verse 6, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. So basically you just tell that, that inner dialogue, which is not you, it's the enemy, shut up in Yeshua's name. Leave in Yeshua's name. Because I don't believe what you're saying, because you're saying that God is a liar. I just read all these scriptures that, God, that, that, that says the opposite of what you're saying to me right now. So I'm going to shut your internal dialogue down. You have no right to speak to me, and I'm not going to listen to you in Yeshua's name. And part of that is what's, what James says in 4 verse 7. Therefore submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You've got to push back. When Satan pushes you, you've got to push back. It's just like a bully. A bully is never going to stop until you punch his lights out. The bully will never stop until you stand up to him. And when you start resisting the devil, he'll get tired of it and he'll go away until he thinks of a new tactic to come back to you and torment you with. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has taken hold of you except what is common to all mankind. No matter what you're tempted with, you think you're all alone, but somebody else has been tempted in the same way sometime in the past or will be in the future. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. That's a good assurance. It may feel like, Lord, I can't handle this. It wouldn't be happening if you couldn't handle it. But with the temptation... He will also provide a way of escape. He's going to create a back door for you to get out of that situation. So you will be able to endure it. And in Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, 16, Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. When Yeshua came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? They answered, Some says John the Baptist or John the Immerser. Others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And he said, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter wasn't always eloquent with words. A lot of times sticking his foot in his mouth. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the son of the living God. And Yeshua said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't learn this in Hebrew school. 
You didn't learn this from any man or any teacher, but the Father who is in heaven. You got this message directly, this dialogue. You got this answer straight from God. God told you that I am his son. God told you that I am the Messiah. Yeshua said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And also I tell you, Peter, upon this rock I will build my community, and the gates of Sheol, or the gates of hell, or the grave, will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth has been forbidden in heaven, and what you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the ruling priests and the Torah scholars to be killed and raised on the third day. So here, just a moment ago, Peter got a dialogue from God. This is my son. He's the Messiah. But right here, when Jesus says, hey guys, I'm going to be killed. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine somebody rebuking the Messiah? <laughs> Saying, never, Master, this must never happen to you. Where did Peter get that dialogue from? Yeah, because Jesus is about to tell him so, right? But he turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. Peter at that time was probably thinking that Yeshua was going to set up his earthly kingdom and kind of take over. That's what he wanted. They were tired of Roman occupation, especially Peter. They were, they were encroaching upon his fishing career. And, but he was getting that internal dialogue, you got to rebuke Jesus. That didn't come from God. That came from Satan. So we, as believers, can hear from God or we can hear from Satan. What is being said needs to be laid out at God's word and judged and weighed by God's word. If it lines up with God's word, it's from God. If it doesn't, it's from Satan and needs to be rebuked and you need to resist it and command it to leave and to flee. Now the word Satan means enemy. Get behind me, enemy. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. Peter was wanting the glory of men and not necessarily the glory of God. When we want the glory of God, we're going to hear from God, and God's will is going to be done in our life. We're going to get what we asked for. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm almost done, I promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. Okay, good. So I'm talking about this internal dialogue when the internal dialogue says opposite of all the encouraging verses and things that I've just said to you. Remember this, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but powerful through God for the tearing down of strongholds. We are tearing down false arguments and every high-minded thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought, here's, here's the key, taking every thought captive. That rogue, random thought, that internal dialogue that says otherwise, is an enemy that needs to be taken captive. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Messiah. Not only taking it captive, but punishing it. 
Verse 6, ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is complete. Banishing that thought, getting rid of that thought, rebuking that thought, casting that thought out. And finally, in Jude 1, 9, it says, But when Michael the archangel, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, he did not dare render a judgment against him for slander, but said, May the Lord rebuke you. We've got to remember our spiritual authority and our spiritual power is not in and of ourselves, but it's in God. It's in Messiah Yeshua. That's why he said, ask whatever you will in my name and it will be done. Will it glorify God that demons and Satan flee from your life, flee from your heart and mind? Yes, it'll glorify him. Yes, it's his will for those things to leave. So say, <laughs> may the Lord rebuke you in Yeshua's name, leave me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a holy, loving God that can be fully trusted. Thank you, Lord, for loving us enough and thinking enough of us to not just keep us a thought within your heart and, our, and your mind, but for allowing us to be born for creating us, for creating us with meaning, for creating us with purpose, to, to reverentially fear you, to keep your commandments, to produce fruit, to glorify you. We thank you that through us, you can be glorified because when we ask for things according to your will and in your name, you're going to do them so that to prove to everyone else who doesn't believe that you are real, that you are powerful, that you are in control. So, Lord, I pray because all of us at one point or another, whether in the past or in the coming future, we're going to probably feel worthless. We're probably going to be down on ourselves and feeling like, what's the use of going on? I pray that you would call to mind all these verses that we went through tonight and remind us of how much you really love us, how much you really care, how much we are truly, really worth to you. We're worth enough. We're not a throwaway sculpture, a throwaway piece of paper. But you thought of us enough to send your son in our place. I, that, that's how special, that's how much we're worth. That's how special we are. And we know that the Messiah is priceless. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.